Welcome to the TDWG Podcast. My name is Paul Davidson and Scott Norman is out on assignment or vacation or something. Honestly, I have no idea. One day a couple weeks ago, he walked out to the front door of the bunker and said, Smell you later, and I haven't heard or seen him since. But before he left, he helped me record what you're about to hear. This is an omnibus of the three vital V's of the English classroom. A limited run podcast series I recorded for my capstone project to finish my master's in English education at Mizzou. Essentially, this is my philosophy on both teaching in general and specifically English as of the summer of 2020. If you're listening to this at a later date, my philosophy might have evolved past this, but it should be somewhat in the ballpark of this type of thinking. If you want to check out its unomnibus form, you can check out the link in the description. Since the TDWG fans are the most hardcore, diehard fans of ours, I decided to put every episode that makes up this limited run series into the 72-minute omnibus episode for your binge-listening pleasure. Without further ado, here is the three vital V's of the English Classroom. Welcome to the three vital V's of the English classroom. My name is Paul Davidson. And I am Scott Norman. And this is a limited run podcast series that I'm doing for my master's capstone through Mizzou in which we will discuss the major concepts their program has taught me and how you might implement them in your classroom. So both of us have been teaching at Portageville High School for the past five years and podcasting, actually, for the past two. In total, we've got 16 years of teaching experience between us, all here in the Missouri boot heel. Both of us have our Bachelor's of Science in Education in Social Studies from Southeast Missouri State University, but despite having a Social Studies degree for his undergrad, Paul has only taught English, and I actually have been teaching Social Studies for my whole career. I am getting a master's right now in secondary administration, and Paul is getting his in English education. Now, did I hear you right earlier? You said the the three vital V's of the English classroom. So why am I here? How is this applicable to me as a social studies teacher? I only include the English classroom in the title because of the whole getting a master's in English education thing. So it will have a tad bit of an English bent to it, but the concepts that we'll be covering could be applied to other subjects, especially the ones that fall under the humanities umbrella, which house both social studies and English, along with a number of other content areas. Okay, well that's good. That makes me feel better as a humanities teacher. (laughs) Um, So... What exactly are the three vital V's then, now that I know I can use them? Uh, The three V's are volume, variety, and value. And we'll go more in depth with each of these three V's in an upcoming episode. I'm just going to talk really loud because you said volume. Could you give us a little bit of a preview so that I know if I have to keep doing this? Uh, Sure. Volume... Uh, is not speaking loudly. Oh. Volume simp- simply means allowing students to practice the foundational skills of reading and writing in a sizable volume. Oh. Variety means to provide students with a wide variety of text to practice those skills with. Finally, value means that we need to allow students to express their thinking in the languages and mediums that they find value in. Okay, so you're saying we need all three of these various V's to be successful in the classroom? Ideally, yes. We would want to see all three of these V's show up inside the classroom. But Rome wasn't built in a day, so you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater or try to swallow an entire steak at once. Uh, If you implement any of these three vital pillars, you should not only see improvement in the quality of the learning that takes place inside your classroom, but also see an increased engagement from your students. So you don't have to do it all at once. You can just pick one where you need and try that out and what works best for you. Well, now that we've climbed Cliche Mountain, 
I am excited. What are we waiting for? Let's get started with these things. Welcome to the three vital V's of the English classroom. My name is Paul Davidson. And I am Scott Norman. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the first and perhaps easiest V to implement, volume. By volume, of course, I mean practicing the foundational skills of reading and writing in a sizable volume. Sadly, that doesn't mean yelling, although Paul is good at both. I know he's got some volume to that voice, but I have a question for you. Okay. You say that this is the question. We need to get them writing in a sizable volume, like writing a lot and reading a lot. But you're an English teacher. Don't they already do a lot of reading and writing in an English classroom? They do, but there is an imbalance in most of the classrooms. And the reason for this imbalance is because of standardized testing and uh, slogging through the canon. But because of both of those things, the imbalance becomes students read a lot more than they actually write in class. Okay, so the the imbalance we're talking about is specifically between reading and writing. Not that there's like not enough of both or too much of both. It's that there's not a correct ratio. There's not a correct ratio. And if anything, technically, I guess there isn't enough writing and there's a little bit too much reading of one particular type of source. Okay. So, uh, as I mentioned, standardized testing, I don't know about other states, but I know because of like the smarter balance here in Missouri, uh, there's starting to be a little bit of shift, but for the most part, English teachers focus more on reading than writing because the test asks more reading comprehension questions and they only have one little performance event that doesn't weigh out as much as the rest of the reading comprehension does. Yeah, you got like 40 read this text and answer the question and then like write three paragraphs. Yep, one one five paragraph <laughs> essay uh, prompt at the end. That's another day that they'll spend. Mm-hmm. So that causes uh, English teachers to focus more on reading and the writing. And then the other one is the classical literary canon, and that's basically where here's this great book from the literary canon. We're going to start and we're going to read this book from chapter one all the way to the end of the book, and it doesn't matter how long it's going to take us. We're going to read this book and get this book done. War and peace. War and peace. That's what we're going to spend the entire year on. (laughs) And because of those two things, we have this imbalance occur. And I'm guilty of this too. Uh, Up until a couple years ago, I would say that with my sophomores, 30% reading, 30% writing. Of Mm -hmm. my seniors, we'd flip it and we'd do probably actually closer to 90% writing and 10% reading. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is actually get both of those levels closer to 50%. Okay, so... If this is the issue, and you're saying even you, who are now aware of these things, are doing it, how do we change something that seems to be like, if we're teaching to the test, right, it it seems to be something that I, as a teacher, would say, it's not my fault, right? What are ways that we can solve the problem while still preparing students? People think that we need to keep them separated. Mm -hmm. We need to keep reading and writing separated because they are two different things. Mm -hmm. But they're not. They are interconnected they are inter they are related in order for you to read something someone had to write it and so what we need to do is show students that there is this interconnection between the 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 abilities to read and the abilities to write that they both work together in tandem and by talking about them and teaching them in tandem that would allow for students to get better at both of them actually so basically you got to get to the point where you understand or where your students can understand that Reading is simply looking at someone else's writing, and writing is simply giving someone else something to read. Yep, pretty okay. much. As, <laughs> and as weird as that sounds, coming out of, like, it seems something that's obvious, but for the most part, we don't teach English that particular way. Yeah, and I know that's something within social studies that's a disconnect, too, because students will write something, 
And then I'll be like, what on earth do you mean by this? And they're like, I don't know. I just wrote what you wanted me to. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, so I, I see that, that disconnectedness. And so you need to show them that what they're reading is actually helping helping them understand what they need to write. So how do we how can we do that? Like how do we actually make that understanding happen? Well, there's two ways that we can possibly do this. The first one is examining the content. Having okay. students break apart and examine how the content is built. And within that, you could do, like, with informative text uh, or argumentative text, you could do the Toleman model, which he talks about, like, how every piece of writing has a claim that they're trying to make, a warrant that backs it up, and, bat and data that helps connect that warrant to that claim. You could also do that, and if you're studying something via narrative, you could look at different plot developments. The famous one is Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, mm -hmm. but you also have something along the lines of you know, like the rags the riches story, mm -hmm. or uh, how comedies always end with a happy ending, or the tragedy always ends with the death. Uh, those particular types of plots, you can have them understand. Here's these type, here's these archetypes, and then they can start applying those patterns to what they're reading. So that is the content. How to examine the content? So looking at the big picture of what is going on in this writing. Yes. Okay. And then the second one is looking at the structural and stylistic nuances that different authors bring to the text. Okay, so what are like some some things that you might see as a as a stylistic nuance that they could call out? Uh, the patterning that they would kind of use with the re with certain ways that they would use repetition, how they how different authors would paint a different scenario. Uh, the, one of the most famous stylistic people is Hemingway. Hemingway has a very like short and distincted type of style that's straight and to the point yet is able to paint a very effective picture. Mm -hmm. And then you flip that on the other side and you have someone, and I'm including two canonical authors. I apologize for that. Mm -hmm. But if you look at someone like F. Scott Fitzgerald, he has more flowery pro prose that he will be very, he'll paint a beautiful picture of what this particular house looks like yeah. where Hemingway will be more direct and to the point. And yeah, then, so they're both they're both using the same big picture overarching structure, but they're doing it in very different like small methods yes. to get there. And then on top of that, like you can also look at how different authors from different backgrounds come at it. Like if you have an author that uh, speaks African-American vernacular English, the rhetorical ways that they use the language is going to be different than a white writer. Like, uh, what was, what's the name of that book that we did? The Crossover. Yes, The Crossover by Kwame, Kwame, Kwame Alexander. Yeah, yes. there you go. That. Like the Crossover by Kwame Alexander, or you could also look at like how Langston Hughes uh, presents his poetry. He pr Hughes writes poetry in a very different and unique way than, let's say, Robert Frostwood. Mm -hmm. So... If if I had to to break this down into like I'm I'm good with like the let's explain this in the simplest way possible the the content you're talking about is essentially the frame of the house like this is laying a foundation and putting up the the load bearing walls of this thing of like how how is the big picture looked at and then the structure to think it back to uh, a former professor of both me and yours Dr. Yeah. Ridley the uh, content is putting the bricks where the bricks need to be yeah okay putting putting the bricks where they need to be and then the structural nuances or the stylistic nuances are more like looking at interior design in the house. Like, how did they actually lay it out to what looks good to them? How, how they enjoy looking at this structure? Even if you step back and you're like, okay, these are both houses, but very clearly How did they the build this house differently than this house? Both yeah. of them ser serve the same function of being a house, yeah. but how is this house different than this house? Okay, so that's that's that second part. So um, the... The deal is here that we're getting to look at all of this information 
and process how people are writing. Is there anything else important we need to know about how this needs to be done? Well, it needs to be done almost immediately. So you don't need to have them read something and then write something separate. You need to strike while the iron's hot. And so as soon as they read something, they need to write about it. And they need to write about it either analyzing it or trying to... Uh, attempt it using the text that they interacted with as a mentor and they're going to try to write their own version of that particular type of text okay so like you could give them let's say a a poem i, I kept wanting to say paragraph for something you could give <laughs> technically them, you could give them a paragraph okay too. give them a paragraph too but you could give them a poem and say okay match the stylistic nuance of this author but write your own put your own content in yeah okay put your own content how you uh how your own thoughts into the structure that the the, the author has already given you okay that way you kind of crawl before you uh run or you could also say uh similar to like college forum post uh, -huh. uh here's this thing write your thoughts about this thing that we read what did you think about the content that you interacted with? okay so either one of those things as long as you're doing it immediately the the point is to get the reading into writing or get the writing into reading as soon as possible yes he let them see that they are two of the same thing and not two separate things okay so um i am i am very interested to see where this goes but i i hear a timer ticking <laughs> when when can i find out more about this topic well we'll continue to talk about volume the vital via volume in our next episode all right i'm excited to see you there Welcome to the Three Vital V's. My name is Paul Davidson. And I am Scott Norman. And on this episode, we're going to be discussing excerpt-based teaching. Uh, okay, it, that doesn't start with a V. That starts with an E. I can do that much English. <laughs> well, the V that this, the concept of excerpt-based teaching would fall under uh, volume. Okay, so that's what we did last time. We're continuing the idea of volume. You're just showing us some insights onto how. Yes, and this is because in order to truly bring a sizable volume of text to students, excerpt-based teaching is almost required. So... I know that you uh, kind of were explaining some of the ideas you got last time we were discussing this. How did you run into this idea, excerpt-based teaching? I first started to grok the importance of excerpt-based teaching during my LCT 8636 teaching literature class. We read Edwin Turner's post, A Few Thoughts on Not Teaching the Canon, on his blog, Biblioclept. In this blog post, Turner discusses how he does not teach books. In fact, he never has his students read an entire book. Instead, Turner argues that we as English teachers should focus on exposing our students to a wide range of voices, styles, and purposes. Okay. Far too often, all we do in English class are deep delves on a handful of canonical novels that often many students tune out of before we're done with the first week of reading. Uh, English is supposed to be about exploring how language works. And we're really not doing that if we are only exposing students to one voice slash style slash purpose for a prolonged time. I'm sorry. I was just chuckling when you talked about tuning out novels because in my uh, junior year English class, I can distinctly remember setting myself up in the back corner. There was like literally this awkward corner of the room where it wasn't like a 90 degree angle. It was, you know, a little bit bigger. And, uh, it was an obtuse angle. It was an obtuse angle. We know math. Yeah, it was an obtuse angle, and there was a bookshelf that didn't quite fit in the corner, but I did, and so I'd slide my chair back there and rest my head in the little wedge between the edge of the bookshelf and the wall, and sleep the whole hour. So you would you turn I, you, you tuned out I on tuned, the first week. I tuned out the whole class. Well, I didn't do it every time, but I, I after I got 
reading because I would like to I read really fast and we'd read so slow in class I would just sleep through it and then she'd like call on me and I'd wake up and answer the question and go back to sleep and guess what with excerpt based teaching it wouldn't take as long yeah because you're only getting a little snippet of it so I am uh, curious then how long because I mean I tuned out pretty darn quick how long are these excerpts you're talking about? How long do they need to be? Well, luckily, shortly after reading that Edwin uh, Turner blog post, I read Connected Reading by Kristen Halley Turner and Troy Hicks. And on page 62 of that book, Turner and Hicks begin to discuss short-form, mid-form, and long-form texts. Okay. Short-form texts are ones that are less than 100 words. Uh, social media posts, headlines, search engine results, and like the things that, like instant messaging. Okay. Long-form texts are ones that are longer than 5,000 words. So we're talking about academic journal articles, long-form journalism, and just any book, that normal book that you would pick up that's longer than 5,000 words. C-spot run? Uh, no, that would probably be... Short-form? Uh, no, no, that would probably be mid-form. Actually. Okay. Uh, mid-form texts are the ones that are smack dab in the middle, 100 to 5,000 words, and they're short enough to read and comprehend in one setting... Or exactly what we need for excerpt-based teaching. So 100 to 5,000 words is excerpt-based teaching range. Okay, so this is this is the stuff that, like, I'll read. If I'm scrolling through ESPN and I click on an article about, like, who's being traded where. While you're scrolling, you're encountering the headline, which is the short form. And okay. once you click on it, that would bring up the mid-form text. And this is bringing you back to before I switched over to social studies education and was doing mass comm. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so... That's that would be considered a mid-form text, like an article. Online? Yes, okay. An online article would be considered mid-form text, and luckily there are a handful of digital texts out there, like you were mentioning, mm -hmm. that we teachers could use to provide a wide variety of voices, styles, and purposes that would fit that mid-form text range. While eventually you would want to bring those texts into the conversation, the thing that Turner and Hicks don't point out is how you can take your existing text and actually trim them down to fit the mid-form text excerpt sweet spot. So when you talk about trimming it down, what what are you talking? Give me an example of something like where you would take a long form text, a book or something, and trim it down like that. Okay, so let's pick a play like uh, the tragedy of Julius Caesar. Your favorite, my favorite. <laughs> we wouldn't have to force the kids to sit through that entire play. We mm -hmm. would take the main points that they would need to get and interact with those. They would still have a good idea of what the how the style is developed, how the play is developed, but they wouldn't have to sit through uh, scenes that are necessarily vital to the thing. So they wouldn't have to sit through uh, Portia being like, oh, I know something's so wrong with Brutus, uh, but I can't do anything about it. Or You just cut straight to shankity shank et tu brute. Yeah, or you wouldn't, you, or you wouldn't have to have Artemidorus saying, "Oh, I have this list of all these names." You wouldn't have to do it. You could quickly, once you get to that point in chat in uh, Act Three, be like, "Hey, by the way, this dude right here, uh, we skipped over this, but this list that he's handing him it has every name on it." And watch what Caesar does. So essentially, what you're doing is you're creating your own adapted, abridged version of a text, like Wishbone. Yes. But uh, and by doing that, one it require it requires you to flex your muscle as a teacher to figure out what is needed for the students. But two, you're getting to just the main things that they need to interact with the main 
the main ways that an author paints a particular scene, the main plot point that they need to wrap their head around, the main area that they are developing this particular idea that they're interacting with. And on top of that, like we already kind of use excerpt based teaching a lot. What those stupid standardized tests that I talked about on the last episode. Our excerpts, yeah. Yeah, that's all they're giving the students excerpts. So that is a, actually kind of feeding into teaching to the test, even though it's a dirty word. That's kind of what we're doing. And heck, in social studies class, mm-hmm. are you actually having them read the entire primary source document most of the time? Not unless it's like a speech or a letter. Pretty much anything else, yeah, we're taking a snippet out of a book or out of somebody's, you know, uh, well, I guess that would still be a book. I was going to say out of somebody's biography or something like that. Um, yeah, you're using an excerpt already. Yeah. And basically it's just pivoting into this thing that teachers already have access to that is already widely viewed, but it has this weird negative stigma attached to it like, no, we have to swallow the entire uh, cow. No, we don't. We can just eat a hamburger. (laughs) I don't know how she swallowed a cow. (laughs) Anyway, so... uh, I'm sorry, my brain is now picturing someone attempting to swallow a cow. Um, I would say then that if you're looking at this, another cool thing about it is the fact that you'll have students, if you do that, say with a Julius Caesar or with a novel then they'll look at it and be intrigued enough that they'll want to go read the yeah. whole thing. Think of it like a teaser a little bit. If they, yeah. cause a lot it's like of, a trailer. Yeah, a lot of teachers are like, but I want them to actually appreciate all of this literature. Well, if they like that little snippet they get, they'll actually go out and find it on their own. Yeah. They'll actually ask you, hey, do you have this? Can I actually read the whole thing? And that actually puts more power in the students' hands. And so instead of force-feeding them this giant piece of information, we're now allowing them to see a lot more different uh, perspectives and allowing them to actually have a chance to engage with something that actually might interest them instead of boring them to death with one thing that they've tuned out of. So one other thing before we, you know, before we close here, I want to talk about is just the idea, because we talked last episode about the idea of volume and writing and reading together and how they're inextricably linked. You have to talk about both of them at the same time and you have to do both in the same time um and one of the things that i think is really cool as far as excerpt based teaching and using those smaller texts that you have talked about in your class and i know because students came to me saying mr norman why did you write this amazon review <laughs> that i did not write um is because they actually are able to if you're doing excerpts like this you're doing small pieces review things as literature that are like an Amazon review of a product. Could you kind of explain that a little bit? Because I think that's really cool, but I want to hear a little bit more of the the working behind how that reading and writing becomes linked. You know how we'll do that? On the next episode when we start talking about variety in uh, the English classroom. Man, I'm excited. (laughs) Welcome to the Three Vital Vs. My name is Paul Davidson. And I am Scott Norman. And on this episode, we are going to start venturing into the second Vital V variety. Scott, when you think of reading in a stereotypical English classroom, what comes to mind? (laughs) Well, you guys have already heard my story about falling asleep while I believe actually Julius Caesar was being read. Um, So there's no offense. No offense, Paul. Um, But yeah. too brute. Yeah, then sleep Scott. Um, (laughs) So I think that a lot of plays and a lot of weird literature in my high school. I mean, (laughs) essentially you're just reading... You're reading novels and you are reading plays. That's essentially the only type of types of reading that. Yeah, I mean, novels and plays pretty much made the the one exception to the rule was Night by Elie Wiesel. 
which is still technically a novel. Yeah, but I mean, it, in the sense that it was it was very much historical. The other ones were were pretty out there. Okay, so uh, there are a wide variety of reasons why people read and write. Yet in the class where we expect the students to develop these two vital skills, teachers limit the choice of how to practice them. If we expect our students to embrace reading and writing as the Swiss Army knife-like tools they are, we ourselves must embrace a variety of text at our disposal in our instruction, not so, just novels and plays. So you say variety. Is this finally where I'm going to get my answer to you sending students to me and asking about Amazon reviews? Yes, actually, because that falls in line with probably the best approach to embracing a wide variety of texts that I've encountered in this entire program. It happened in my LCT 8617 Teaching Writing in Middle and Secondary Classrooms class when we read Kelly Gallagher's Write That Like This. In that text, Gallagher discusses shifting the idea of writing instruction away from a genre-based approach to one that is focused more on purposes. Gallagher explains that there are many different writing purposes that exist, but the most common ones that we need to introduce to our students to are the ones as followed. The first one is express and reflect. Okay, so what would that be? So an express and reflect is essentially you're expressing an experience that you had, so you're essentially telling a story of yours and then reflecting back on how that story impacted you. Okay, so this is the classic, like, hey, this is a person who's significant in my life, here's the things they've done for me, and this is how it shaped my personality or my future. Exactly. Okay. The next one is inform and explain. This sounds like my classroom. <laughs> this is like where I send them out and say, tell me what happened in this historical event. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I could see that being that, where you're basically saying, here's this information, and here, and you're explaining why this information is important. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, this would be an informational essay where they're... An instance that I have in my head here is when we do uh, various wars, proxy wars during the uh, Cold, War. Cold War. Yeah, wow, brain fart. <laughs> um, then the basically the goal is pick one of those things and tell me what you believe is significant about it and why. Yep, you're informing here's what the war was yeah. and here's why uh, we need to learn about it. Yeah. Then the third one is evaluate and judge. And that, my friend, is your Amazon reviews. Okay, so I had students coming up to me asking me why I wrote a review for some sheets on Amazon. <laughs> and you're telling me it was part of this lesson. How did that work? Essentially, you're saying if something is good or bad. Okay. That's all an, all an Amazon review is, is, is you're evaluating this is a good thing or a bad thing or a meh thing, and here's my criteria I'm explaining. Here's my judgment of why it was good or bad. Okay. And uh, apparently there was a pun used that, that led them to think it was me. Yes, uh, because you are the master of puns. Not the English teacher, but the social studies teacher. Thank you, thank you. I will wear the crown proudly. The next one is uh, inquire and explore. And that's essentially where you're wrestling with a question. You actually have a question. The student has a question that they're looking for. And so they prose the question and then they go out and try to find the answer. Okay. And then the next one is analyze and interpret. This is the one that you're probably going to use the most in English class where mm -hmm. you read the text, you analyzed it, and then you make an interpretation of how, of the bigger significance that text holds. So this is the like, what do they really mean? And there's one left, my favorite probably. Yes, it is take a stand slash propose a solution because you have to do them together. Take a stand. This is what I believe. This is the problem that we have. And then mm -hmm. propose a solution. Here's how we're going to solve it. Here's what needs to be done. I love the fact that like built into this methodology is that those things go together because I feel like one of the big issues in my social studies classroom is people love saying, here's a problem, and then sitting down. 
There are many things that I love about the purposes approach, but the thing I love the most about it is how each purpose requires the students to extend their thinking. The first half of each purpose, they're just blurting out the answer or claim, kind of like you were saying, mm-hmm. uh, which they're really good at. They're like, yes. this is what I believe. This is what I think. LeBron James is the GOAT. But the second half requires them to actually defend their answers and support their claim with the Ptolemyist warrant and data to make the answer or claim stronger. So it actually forces them to go from low-level thinking into higher-level thinking. Yeah, so this... I mean, all these things working together, the take a stand, propose a solution, analyze and interpret, inquire and explore, a lot of these things kind of harken back to when you were talking about the volume of reading and writing, that you have to keep those things equal, that those things have to go together, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Students could deconstruct any piece of literature we're reading, or any piece, not necessarily literature, but anything that we're reading, and see which of the purposes that piece is trying to accomplish. And then, vice versa, they could harken back to those pieces that we broke down once they figured out that purpose, and whenever they have to fulfill their own purpose in a similar fashion, they could revisit those texts that we've already broke down and say, hey, this is this purpose is uh, take a stand, propose a solution. This is evaluate and uh, judge. Uh, they can go back to those ones that more professional, more experienced writers have written mm-hmm. and use those as mentor texts to help them compose their own texts to help fulfill their purposes. Okay, so I'm curious. We've been talking about a lot of things that while like, you know, as we discuss them, it's like, oh, yeah, that really makes sense. We haven't talked a whole lot about like the old classic traditional ways of doing this stuff. So what about like an informative essay, a personal narrative or just a classic argumentative essay? How do that or those various things fall into this methodology? Well, all the traditional genre essays that you were referring to, the students will, uh, that they usually write in English class, they'll still be there. Mm-hmm. But instead of them being the central thing that they'll focus on, they'll become tools that they can use. Because each of those types of essays could be used to help fulfill a different type of purpose. Mm-hmm. So the personal narrative, naturally you'd think that would express and reflect, mm-hmm. but that could also be applied to take a stand propose a solution. Because you could talk about a personal ex- experience that you've had and how that has made you feel like you need to take this particular stand and that's why you're proposing this particular solution because of your own personal experience that you've been through okay the same thing could be with uh, an informative essay and the informative essay could easily even though it's not necessarily as effective as certain other types it could be applied to the evaluate and judge and of course obviously the inform and explain so all of these traditional essays that we can use uh, all of a sudden become tools and so if students become are actually stronger at necessarily probably telling stories or if they're stronger at informative essays or if they're stronger at argumentation they can kind of pivot into those strengths and use those to fulfill the purposes and they're not being forced to have to necessarily run down one particular path okay so with giving them all of that freedom what if a kid just does the same approach every time though like what are you going to do about that well at the end of the day the, the biggest thing that we need to do to help also address that is often teachers will punish kids or not punish but penalize kids for making a mistake when they take a risk but it should be the opposite we need to encourage students to take risks with their writing do something that's outside of their comfort zone do something they're not familiar with and try to add that to their repertoire as a writer try to help them grow as a writer so we need to encourage these risk taking that way that they can start implementing them instead of slapping them on the wrist when like no you didn't do this right 
bad you and discourage them from taking even more risk and sticking to that same comfortable style that they've used over and over and over again. So I'm not going to lie, when we started this, I'm expecting the variety to be a variety of texts, but in reality, it's a variety of purposes that they are using, which will then create different types the of The variety texts. of text, yes. Okay, yeah, so that, that my brain this whole time has been trying to wrap itself around that concept, and it's all coming together now in my noggin. Um, hopefully, at the same time, it's coming together for those who are listening. <laughs> yep, and that will be it for a variety when it comes to the variety of text. Variety also refers to the amount of voices we allow into the English classroom, and we'll be talking about that one on our next episode. Welcome to the Three Vital V's. My name's Paul Davidson. And I am Scott Norman. And on this episode, we're going to continue to discuss the second Vital V of variety. But this time, we're going to be focusing on increasing the variety of voices that exist inside the text that we populate the English curriculum with. So last time, we talked about variety of purpose. And really, that's variety of purposes the students could use. Purposes that cover a wide variety of why people write in general. Like Flipper. He's a purpose, right? Oh, wait, no, he's a dolphin. Anyway, so here's my question. I know that there are multiple types of variety, right? So that's variety of purposes. I tend to think when I think variety, a variety of like books, people who write different books, right? But every time that I start talking about that type of variety, you tend to talk about canon. And I am familiar with canon, like this is canon, saying that like this counts towards Star Wars or the Bible, right? But what is canon when talking about the English classroom? Because I, I genuinely am not 100% sure on this. The canon are the great works, the audience can't see it, but I just did air quotes, of literature that you tend to expect to be taught inside a stereotypical English classroom. Shakespeare, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Homer, etc. The stuff that, that we've been teaching for 100 plus years in mm -hmm. the English class, that stuff would be what you expect to be a canon. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with any of these authors, but they tend to fall into the same category. Heterosexual, white, upper-class, western males. This is the same category that makes up what some view as the dominant culture. Their pivotal position in the literary canon results in female voices and voices of black, Latinx, Indian, biracial, Asian, non-Christian, LBGTQ+, and disabled communities being silenced. In order to ensure these voices are not being silenced, we must frequently allow their presence to be felt among those that make up the canon. Luckily, bringing these non-canonical voices from outside the dominant culture provides teachers with a wealth of learning opportunities. So essentially, you're like taking things that kids, especially we teach in Southeast Missouri, voices that they usually wouldn't have heard say anything and then providing them the opportunity to hear those voices in the classroom via excerpts, as we referred yes, to uh, earlier. Via excerpts or just via writing, just their voices are present. So people that they normally wouldn't hear from or people that they actually share a lot with, that they never get to see that other people share these views, they can actually see those inside the literature. So you mentioned learning opportunities from doing this. I'm already having some come to mind, but what are some of the ones that you're referring to? Hands down. The most important and timely opportunity they provide us with is a safe avenue to have substantive discussions about race with. Okay, so this is a time where everything racially charged all over the place and people are terrified to talk about it, I feel like. So can you tell us a little bit more about how this is an avenue to talk about race? Well, like you just said, most white teachers and white students are actually afraid to talk about race where individuals that are from different 
quote-unquote non-dominant racial groups are used to talking about it pretty much non-stop they talk mm -hmm. about it at the kitchen table all the time where in white communities it's a taboo thing that's not supposed to be mentioned mm -hmm. basically this provides us a safe opportunity to remove that stigma that comes from it mainly because white students and teachers are afraid that they might say something that is racially insensitive. They might say something that might hurt somebody's feelings mm -hmm. uh, because they're ignorant in how these discussions go on. But we give them the place where they can actually have them, and this helps remove the chance of silent racism because not talking about these issues is the way that the silent racism persists. And in order for us to make gains when it comes to racial relations, we actually have to talk about it. We can't just sweep it under the rug and ignore it. I thought in order to make gains, you had to, like, take creatine and pump iron. Sorry, wrong kind of gain, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really do think that you're right in this. This is something that I have actually seen a little bit in my social studies classroom, is I've been allowing students to go find articles from the past week or two weeks of news and bring those articles in and present the articles to the classroom. And I've seen a whole bunch of avenues open up for that kind of dialogue. I guess I had never really thought of it in the terms, though, of a new voice speaking in the classroom. But that's really what it is. Yeah, because think about it in, like, the stereotypical social studies classroom. Most of the time, they're not allowed to talk about those things. It's, here's what, I, what the great history told us, and this is the only type of history that you can look at. Yeah, and we we talk about kind of, you know, we have actually joked about in the past the idea of, like, top-down history versus bottom-up history and how allowing these other voices you're allowing people who don't get to speak in the grand scheme of things to speak um so what that's essentially what you're doing here with all of this and to piggyback on top of what you were saying yeah like these past couple of years during this master's program i've never turned away from having racial discussions mm -hmm. but i have embraced it to the point where like we have a chance to talk about it i'll bring it up that way we can have this open dialogue and i will say that with my black students like we have had a big shift in how they engage and participate within class just because we're actually talking about these things that they want to talk about that no one else ever wants to talk about mm -hmm. and they because it's too taboo yeah so what along with that and that that is an awesome opportunity in and of itself but what are some of the other opportunities that may present themselves along with that when you allow non-dominant voices in the room well another book that i read throughout this entire master's program was why all the black kids sit together in the cafeteria by beverly daniel tatum mm -hmm. and in that she kind of discusses about how Due to the fact that we have this silent racism, that race is a thing that people aren't allowed to talk about, mm -hmm. uh, students, when they're trying to find their identity, to try to figure out who they are, and especially with their racial identity, they'll turn to mass media to see how they're supposed to act. Mm -hmm. The big problem with that is often mass media portrays stereotypes of how different ethnic groups are supposed to act. Mm -hmm. And so they'll think that the only way that they could truly be Latinx, the only way they could truly be African-American is they have to act like these particular stereotypes. Which very often the stereotypes are not even created by people from those cultures. They're created by people from the dominant culture. The most harmful part of this is that often those stereotypes show that if you are academic, you are not playing into your racial identity. Mm -hmm. But providing more voices can show, no, there are black people who are academic. There are Latinx people who are academic. These are people that uh, enjoy doing these things. It's okay to actually like school. It's okay to do well at school because here are examples, here are role models that actually participate in academia, but they don't do so in a whitewashed fashion. They stay true to who they are racially. Mm -hmm. And we're providing them with positive role models to show, hey, you can actually do these things. These are not just exclusively white things. I, just coming to mind off the top of my head, 
is somebody like a Richard Sherman who is incredibly good at having discussions about things and went to like Harvard or somewhere and he's a pro sports player and yet he is able to have Richard Sherman of... went to uh, Stanford. Stanford, sorry, yeah. sorry, I, I apologize. But yeah, so being these things that are very traditionally considered white, but in reality, they're just him being successful and he's able to prove, no, I am who I am and I stand in my identity. However... These are my accomplishments. Yeah, and another excellent source that you could go to are people that went through the HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. There is a very proud history and lineage with those particular programs that have produced really stellar and interesting individuals that regardless of your race, you probably want to learn about how these people think and how these people interact with the wider world. And they often get ostracized mainly because of them not being from dominant canon. Yeah, that just exposes a blind spot even for me because I'm looking for, like, the Ivy League schools, these specific schools. And you're not looking at the Black Ivies. <laughs> exactly. I'm not at all because in my head, I haven't even learned that those are out there. I couldn't name them for you, right? And so that in and of itself, I think, is speaking to the fact that we need these things because even as a teacher, I couldn't have identified that, you know, until this conversation. So is there any other things along with the quality role models, anything else that we can uh, learn from this? The biggest thing that these voices bring to us is a growth mindset. Because mm -hmm. often in these canonical white authors, they kind of promote a fixed mindset where you had to naturally have this talent. You had to naturally be smart in order to succeed. That's because they were born on third base. But uh, with these voices that aren't from the dominant canon, you see more of a growth mindset where they essentially show how they failed, how they changed, how they kept working, and how they succeeded, and how they didn't let that failure bring them down. They weren't just born with this natural skill. They weren't mm -hmm. just born with this natural intelligence. No, it was something that they had to work hard at to get to where they were at. And so it provides us with plenty of excellent things show about with growth mindset, which Carol Dweck is the professor that usually is the big person that pushes growth mindset. And one of the things she talks about is in order to help get kids to understand what a growth mindset is and get them into a growth mindset is actually introduce them to stories in which the main characters, the protagonists are demonstrating growth mindset qualities and authors who are not from the canon, who are from these non-dominant portions of society are an excellent source to allow us to see these types of of stories. I had some authors come to mind actually as you were saying that. If you are looking for that kind of thing, there's a guy named Lecrae and his book Unashamed is really interesting talking about how he owns a, a record label and his growth through all of that and that mindset is what you're talking about but he doesn't ever call it that. But oh, that will like... never outright call it a growth mindset. <laughs> yeah, it's... So it's one of those layers that you need to add on to the literature. Like, while you're reading it, you add the layer of, like, how does this apply to the growth mindset? How does this apply to that concept that we've talked about before? Mm-hmm. And so as we're looking, as we're trying to find things, I know I just... You gave a source, but I, there's I other sources there. that we can get, go yeah, to. Yeah, so what, what are some good places that we can find these kind of voices? The best believe it or not, is another type of literature that is kind of viewed as juvenile and kind of pushed to the side, YA literature. That is one of the best sources to find the texts that provide avenues for non-dominant voices, although it is often looked down on by many as quote-unquote juvenile or beneath canonical or adult counterparts, YA lit is actually more impactful on students because it is many things at once. YA explores a wide variety of topics all within that same like coming-of-age story structure, but they explore so many different ideas, concepts, and themes that they chunk in there because 
just how turbulent adolescence is in mm-hmm. people's lives. And also, the added benefit is the main characters, the protagonist of these stories, reflect their own concerns because they're adolescents. It's written from the perspective of adolescents, so they can see themselves more in line with that, which Kylan Beers, who wrote Why Kids Can't Read, she often talks about these different levels of literary appreciation. Mm -hmm. And one of them is, I think it's like level two or level three, where they say students want to see stories in which they can see themselves in. And far too often than not, in high school, we don't allow them to see themselves in the stories. We have them read adult literature and say, no, this YA stuff, that's trash. That's beneath you. You could do better than that. But no, YA actually has a lot of benefit to bring to the table. Yeah, and I do see like... I, I kind of, in my head, have always had this meter of, like, looking at the kids who are the highest performing kids in my class and trying to figure out why. They all read. And exactly. <laughs> they're, it's almost always the kids who finish a test and get out a book. And I would say at least 60% of the time, the book they get out is a, YA is, is a young adult novel that I would probably never read because I'm just not really interested in it personally. And I know this doesn't necessarily go into what we're talking about with Mm -hmm. variety. It actually kind of goes back to volume. But YA literature is a lot shorter to get through compared to a traditional canonical counterpart. It is. And although I have seen kids reading young adult literature that is like thicker than the Lord of the Rings canon together. It's the size of the text they print. Oh, okay. But it it just (laughs) looks huge. And I'm like, holy cow. And they'll, you know, read it in a week. And then the next week they're in with another book. But anyway, just point being that... It is those books that I see kids reading, and those are the kids who are performing the best and who can have the most substantive discussions because they know how to use language properly, which goes back to the reading and writing conversation. Exactly. It's, it's all, almost, it's almost it's like coming there's together. a reason why we're doing this. It is. It's all coming together. Well, I'm excited. We've looked now at the first couple of V's. We have volume. We have variety. What's the very next thing we get to talk about? The final V is going to be value. And believe it or not, the first thing that we're going to talk about within value also kind of talks about variety. Welcome to the three vital V's. My name's Paul Davidson. And I am Scott Norman. And on this episode, we're going to venture into the third and final V, value. Saving the best for last. Well, actually, we kind of are. The V of value is V where student engagement comes into play because we're allowing students to express their thinking in the languages and mediums that they value. Wait, languages? Yes, languages. In fact, that is part of the value that we're going to examine in this episode. Okay, a little confused here. This is an English classroom, so now we're going to be speaking in, like, Spanish and Swahili? Okay. If you want a more in-depth and thorough explanation about what I'm about to talk about, I would highly recommend checking out Lippy Green's English with an Accent. So it's going to be deep if you're recommending the book before the explanation to the question. But in a nutshell, here's what I mean by languages. Have you ever heard someone say something along the lines, why do we have to learn English when we already speak it? Yeah, I've heard lots of students say it. I've probably said it a few times myself. Well, in that sense, English is one language. Anyone that speaks it can communicate with another speaker and, for the most part, understand what is trying to be communicated. However, the ways that people say and use words can be different. Often you'll hear these differences being referred to colloquially as a dialect. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they go even further and they're this thing called a vernacular. These differences, big and small, is what we're referring to as different languages. Okay. So my brain that speaks in idioms and such things if we were to reference this and picture it in our minds then english is like this big old tree 
and every time that a new branch grows on that tree, it is either a dialect or a vernacular that you're referring to here as a different language. Yes. Well, technically, it would be more along the lines of, like, English is the trunk of the tree. Uh-huh. The vernacular are, like, the main branches, and the dialects are the smaller branches off of the vernacular. Okay, so... We live in the Missouri Boot Hill. We teach and live in the Missouri Boot Hill. <laughs> yes, we do. We live in a very interesting, like, linguistic spot, because mm-hmm. vernacularly... We butt up against what is called the Midland dialect, the Southern dialect, and the Ozarkian dialect. So we're right at like a three corners post of that. Mm -hmm. On top of that, we have an increased community of Latinx individuals in Dunklin County. Mm -hmm. And we teach in a school that has a sizable population of black students that speak uh, African-American vernacular English. So there's a lot of different vernaculars that are going on in just our tiny little community. So in my experience... When someone is speaking those things, uh, they were just considered to be breaking the language rules. Because I know in English class, whenever I tried to make dumb puns and stretch it into, like, starting to talk like this or whatever, then it was wrong. Aha! That is a misconception we have to clear up. When you refer to, quote-unquote, proper language, you're actually referring to a specific variation of English that is called Standard American English, or SAE. Okay. So, SAE standard are you talking like it's standardized like a test or well the reason why it was originally called SAE because there's also a movement to kind of rename it to edited American English and we'll talk about that later they refer to it as standard as this is the measuring stick this is the standard this is the thing you have to live up to oh well so then it is saying that it's the right way to speak because it has it's the standard no actually Uh, you're confusing me standard American English simply is a variation of English that is spoken by the majority of upper to middle class white people Lippy Green and other linguists consider this to be the language of power. Also, according to her and other linguists, there is nothing superior about that variation, standard American English, when compared to any other. In fact, it is more often than not more complex and less efficient when compared to other variations of English. However, since SAE is considered the language of power, its speakers are allowed to unjustly label other English variations, deviations, as errors, which leads to the major problem it causes in public education, the communicative burden. I mean, I just have to say that as far as a language of power, I always thought all the smart people spoke British. And the best villains. That's actually standard British English, probably. Oh, SBE. S-B-E. So, sorry, I sidetracked. (laughs) What is the communicative burden that you are referring to here? Like, you have to carry around your English books? (laughs) Once again, Lippy Green and a study she quotes from Clark and uh, Wilkes Gibb can provide you a much more detailed explanation about what I'm about to go into. But the short version is the communicative burden is who is responsible for trying to understand what is being said in a conversation. Ideally, the burden should fall on the listener to construct understanding and meaning. So the Mm -hmm. person that's listening is the person that needs to figure out what is being said. Uh However, often standard American English speakers will place the burden on non-SAE speakers for both the speaking role and the listening role. Okay, So so this is like when somebody comes up and they say something to someone else, and the person hearing them says, learn to speak right. Yes, exactly. Okay. And essentially, the SAA speakers will more often outright ignore non-SAA speakers or belittle them with comments that you said, mm-hmm. unless the information they're trying to communicate is done exclusively in SAE. Okay. This is people using it as a ruler. 
to bop people with. Yep. Because that's like... They're using language as a weapon, not a tool. I see this all the time on discussions on the internet. Now, I will say that some of the people who are making comments have used such a broken English that no one knows what they're saying. But very often somebody will say a very well-reasoned argument and there will be like a misspelling in the middle. And the response of the person they're talking to is, well, learn English. Yep, they're using standard American <laughs> English, kind of, to prevent them from having to understand what is being said. Okay. Now, let's apply this to the public school classroom. Most teachers that teach in front of a classroom are fluent SAE speakers. And that's, I guess, because we went through colleges that required us to do that, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's a gate we chose to go through, mm -hmm. and so that's an expectation that that particular gate has put on us. Mm -hmm. We didn't have to go to college if we didn't want to. But to but, become a teacher. But to did. become a teacher, we had to, and that's yeah. something we wanted to do, so we had to learn how to manage and navigate through that gate. Okay. Most of the students that we have, they're mm -hmm. forced to go to public school, and so we're trying to enforce a gate upon them whenever they didn't make that decision to try to go through that gate. So we're, basically, it's like, you're choosing to be in this classroom, and it's like, no, I'm not. And it's like, well, well, you're here, so live by the rules. Yes, and so as I was saying, most teachers are fluent SAE speakers, and as a result, SAE is de facto the only acceptable language inside the classroom. Non-SAE speaking students may have an excellent and sound idea or argument they're trying to communicate, but they're being ignored because it is not done in the language of power, which is somewhat a foreign language to them. So, I mean, why don't we just get rid of it? Why do we need to have SAE at all? Why don't we just move on? We need to keep SAE. It still needs to be taught, but it does not need to be taught in a way that is the end-all be-all. Okay. In fact, if you embrace and not shun non-SAE dialects or languages, you actually open up avenues in which students can compare their home language, how they naturally speak, and how they grew up speaking, how their family speaks, and how their community speaks, and they mm -hmm. can compare that to the standard version and actually come away with a firmer understanding of why the standard version follows that rule instead of saying, you're wrong and bad for speaking in the language that you have spoken in your entire life. Okay, so if we don't need to get rid of it, we're keeping it, then what is the benefit of bringing in all of these other varieties into the classroom and allowing them in if we're still going to be studying that main one? There's two of them. Okay. The first one is it helps students be able to produce better content, and then another added bonus is that their style of their writing will also be improved. Okay. I am a social studies teacher. How is allowing them to write in a way that requires me to do a little bit more work going to actually improve their content. Essentially, as some of my former students have said, they don't have to write in their white voice. And that by that, I mean they no longer have to concentrate on translating what they want to communicate into SAE. They can just say what they actually want to say onto the page more naturally. So they can focus solely on expressing their thoughts. Then once they're done jotting them down, they can go back and translate them if they really want to. But at the end of the day, they've already expressed what they really need to talk about. Something I'd like to just kind of like throw out there is that I know that we often talk about these things in terms of race because a lot of the literature refers to it that way. In Southeast Missouri, I know a lot of white students who don't use SAE at all. Oh, they no, use no. They, Southeast Missourian. They um, use Boot Hill Ease. Yeah. And it's a, uh, Boot Hill Ease, how I explain it because I had to take a language class, is essentially a southern dialect that has a little bit more of a mumble to it mm -hmm. and has a little bit of Ozark creep in and a good blending of they take elements of aave african-american vernacular english and that have been incorporated into the boot hill ease 
Yeah, I always tried to explain to my students because I had a lot of students when I first started teaching in this area, and now I've started kind of picking up. Oh, you picked up a little bit of a twang. Uh, I'm not yeah, gonna lie. I, it's it's there now that I didn't, I never had before, never imagined having. But where students would be like, "Where are you from?" And, and my response would usually be, well, I'm from all over the place. I'm a military brat. And so I don't really feel like I have an accent. And then whenever I try to... But you to, have a military brat accent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so whenever I try to explain to students what the accent is like, I would use this fake voice trying to explain it to them. And I have caught myself so many times, now that I've taught in the boot heel for seven years saying something just in real life and then going, holy cow, that was my fake accent seven years ago. <laughs> <laughs> like, but essentially what we're doing is just trying to call for, instead of us like using language as a weapon and demonizing it, like actually explore, have these conversations. I know we've kind of gone off the rails of what we were trying to talk about with content, mm-hmm. but this is a lot more interesting to talk about like the different ways that people use language and how different accents work than necessarily saying, no, you have to have this comma here. Yeah. You did not have proper proper subject verb agreement instead actually exploring those differences actually is more engaging instead Mm -hmm. of just being hit over the head with a bunch of rules and zoning out yeah that kind of brings up like an example of i have several students who are amazing at debate one kid pops up into my head specifically that he came in and we were having a debate about whether or not we should have dropped the bomb because yay stereotypical classroom and he just carried his side of the room. I don't remember if he was for or against using the bomb, but he absolutely carried his classmates. And they were they had their papers printed out sitting on their desk. And I was like, man, this guy's going to have an awesome essay because he is just carrying the debate. He turned it in an essay. It was like a paragraph, and it was horrible. And I was like, what happened? I was like, you, you, that was amazing. Why isn't it on the paper? And he was just basically like, I don't know, it's hard. Yeah, and that's because he's try he's thinking that he has to write in a particular essay voice, mm-hmm. which is foreign to him and a much more difficult thing to do. If we can remove that stigma and encourage them to actually write in their actual natural voice, what they would say out loud, just spill it onto the page, mm-hmm. they would have had pages upon pages of what they were trying to what they were saying in class yeah. instead of just the paragraph they submitted. And I have the problem all the time of students who actually do turn in a proper SOE paper. I never would have called it that before, but they, they turn it in and like, I can't fault them on the structure of the paper in any way, but it's somehow devoid of all content and meaning. It's very dry and boring, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, not only dry and boring, like it's literally like empty rules. All the words are in the right place, but it doesn't really have any meaning to it. And so if I could get them to follow what you're talking about, like really speaking onto the page, it could also develop their own kind of personal voice or style. Yes, they would be able to, their style would be able to be seen in there. Often when we talk about style, it's about how an author can be uniquely themselves on a page. They are using words that they would actually use in a sentence cadence that seems natural to them. Mm -hmm. Often the professional authors that get lauded for their firm grasp upon style are simply letting their home language seep into SAE. And that's exactly what we will be doing if we allow and encourage our students to draft in their home language. Well, this whole conversation about variety and value has been very valuable to me. I'm excited. What is the next thing we speak about with value? On the next episode, we'll continue talking about value, but this time we'll be talking about 21st century mediums.
Welcome to the Three Vital V's. My name is Paul Davidson. And I am Scott Norman. And on this episode, we're going to be continuing to talk about value, specifically the value of 21st century mediums in the classroom. So when I think 21st century mediums in the classroom, immediately what pops into my head is another class that I'm actually in, in which I have been doing research on cell phone or specifically smartphone use in the classroom because, sorry, you know, those Nokia 3310s just don't qualify. And in the research, as I was doing kind of the background on it, what I found is that there are two main areas that research will focus on. One, when they're researching classroom use of smartphones, it is why it has a whole bunch of negative effects and what those effects are on students. Another one is what happens when you ban smartphones and how to ban smartphones in schools. The problem there is, the big gaping hole in the middle is, what is the way to effectively use smartphones in the classroom? And for me, I think the biggest thing that people are kind of worried about is social media, don't you think? Yeah, social media gets a pretty bad rap, and it's the big thing that gets vilified, but in reality, there's a lot of benefit that comes from having social media. For one, social media is the media that students feel the most comfortable in. Mm -hmm. Sure, there is stuff that's associated with cyberbullying. There's stuff that is associated with like the stranger danger side of the internet. But at the end of the day, social media is where our students are spending the majority of their literate lives. And so it is kind of detrimental to us as teachers to ignore it. Because it's valuable to our students, we need to find value in it ourselves and figure out how to tap into that gold mine that we are ignoring. So this kind of brings back to mind for me the conversation that we just had in valuing very linguistic styles like you know we wouldn't tell someone no speak English writer I won't listen to what you're saying that's kind of the vibe I'm getting here that we aren't valuing the media itself because there's this standard of if it's not in a you know book that's an inch if it's thick, not in APA format it oh, is I hate APA so yeah anyway point being that APA formatting is like that standard American English you talked about last time where it's the thing that we kind of force students to come to the classroom and then say no you can't do this in a tweet you can't do this in a forum posty style thing can't do it in a podcast you have to do it in a five paragraph essay that follows this exact thing and in doing so, it's the exact same thing we're doing to kids when we tell them, no, you can't talk that way. And on top of that, I know that a lot of people are like, oh, but we have to prepare our students for their future endeavors. But a lot of our students aren't necessarily planning on going into academia. And if we really want them to get into academia, saying, no, you have to start here instead of starting where they're at and helping pivot them towards the more academic concepts is going to be a no starter for a lot of them. And besides even those things students find a lot of their like personal value in social media like their actual self-worth i guess they're finding through these things that they using. see their identity in there yeah their identity a lot of that comes down to the fact that the internet specifically social media provides a wide range of possible interests that people talk about from a wide variety of backgrounds it is a very uh, democratizing type of forum for people to interact with and so like we have a former student who was all about cars mm -hmm. and so a lot of the stuff that we do academically in class is not going to be about cars but if i can help push him towards that particular purpose and find information that is all about how this particular formula one race car uh, performs at this particular type of high performance speed that he is getting more value in that and he is actually able to become more engaged and build up his ability to read more than if i said all right here read this article about spain yeah and i think for me i saw that exact same example with him because he never talked to 
in class never participated, but on the days I let them bring in their own articles, it was always about a car, and he loved to talk about it. Yeah, your article of the week thing Mm -hmm. that you do, that's essentially you playing into the social media aspects that these kids like, because what's a big thing that people do on social media? I mean, you share news articles all the time. Yeah, that's essentially what you're doing, but you're bringing that aspect into the classroom to help tap into this knowledge. Yeah, I never really thought about it that way, but it really is like, hey guys, we have a massive Facebook wall post. <laughs> like that's, that's kind of what I'm doing. So it really does then, social media, because of the wide range of views and kids being able to connect with people like them or that agree with them and see that, it really does end up, therefore, adding both volume and variety. There's a lot that you can mine and have access to. And on top of that, anybody can really talk about it. Now, there's some drawbacks to that, but that's part of the thing that we're going to be talking about next is that despite the fact that most people view teenagers nowadays as digital natives, they still need to have some guidance. They actually still need to use traditional literary skills to help them navigate these waters a little bit more effectively. So when you say that, what do you mean when you say they need traditional literary practice. Well, both of us know as people who are trained in reading and understanding that there is a bias that is involved. So they need to understand where those biases are coming from. They Mm -hmm. need to understand that sometimes they need to seek out other points of view, other sources in order to help confirm or deny those particular biases. And really for my students, that's a huge thing because we're doing government stuff, right? And so all the time you see social media where people will share an article and the facts aren't even necessarily wrong, but They've twisted those facts because they've chosen to leave out seven other facts, you know, they just didn't throw in there. Yeah, they're framing an argument in a particular fashion. They are deciding to only focus on one particular portion of it instead of bringing it out and showing the bigger picture, in which that's the thing we need to help students understand is that they grew up in this world. They think that this is how they need to navigate it, but we need to help them understand that, yes, there are people that are out there trying to take advantage of them. There are people trying to manipulate them just so they can have their attention, just so they can get those sweet, sweet views. And that's the big deal is that regardless of whether or not we allow social media into the classroom, I'm doing air quotes, they're going to be facing all of these things that they could use literary tools to figure out. But if we don't allow social media in the classroom at all, they're not going to be prepared to deal with those things. And so the value that they already find in it is going to be actually enhancing their ability to understand these English concepts because they can use it. Exactly. It's just plain outright silly that us as educators will completely ignore a particular aspect of the world that is very important to our students, that is something that is a vital aspect of it, and just because it does not fall in line with what we traditionally view as school, we shun it to a side to let our students navigate it and fall into its traps. It's the kind of same idea of like, now if you go into a classroom it is not at all considered strange to have a smart board or a television up there that you can click through slides or do something like that. Whereas at one point in time, that would be considered, you know, near heresy. You've got to be writing the thing on the board and copying off of the board. And now we look at that and we're like, well, no, obviously that doesn't make sense. Media has moved on and we need to embrace that. So the question then becomes, how then, if we are going to bring this into the classroom, how do we bring value to social media and allow students to be prepared to bring good, well-reasoned information to social media themselves. There's two ways that this happens. Okay. 
The first way is just to allow social media to be read as text. I know a lot of teachers already bring podcasts, YouTube videos, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But heck, bring tweets in. Look at the president's tweets. Evaluate how (laughs) how those go. That'll be funny. Yeah. Bring in Snapchat stories and see how those were particularly put together. Bring in TikToks and see how you can look at those through a critical lens. Bring in memes because that's the new political cartoon that students latch onto and actually can wrap their head around certain concepts. So just allowing those in as text is the first way. Okay. The second way is to allow them to create those texts in response to an assignment. So letting them do a podcast, depending on what it is, you might not necessarily say that the entire assignment could be a TikTok, but let's say you have a bunch of questions they need to answer. Why can't they answer them via a TikTok style video? Okay. That brings to mind something. When I first started teaching, I'm talking, I was still in student teaching. I thought it would be so cool to allow my kids to do a political cartoon as a project. You know, they get points for it. And I was like, I can see their style. I can see all this. And I gave it to them and they're all like, Ugh, this is awful. And yet those exact, no, not those exact same students, but the exact same generation of students here, I know for a fact, because we've done a podcast about it, are great at creating memes. And a lot of those memes are overtly political. And I just never really made that equation back and forth of I could assign them, make a meme about what is currently going on in politics. It would fill the exact same role. Or you could even tell them to make a meme about World War II. That's true. And that would actually be the exact same purpose as make a political cartoon about it. It just doesn't look traditional or academic, but the thing we have to get across is this. Depending on what the situation is. Now, in colleges, do I expect colleges to start doing this? Not necessarily, but we are public high school teachers. Mm -hmm. What is more important for our students to have an understanding of? The concepts that they are trying to understand or the fact that they are able to follow the framework that is expected of them from an academic point of view? Yeah, and I really do think it's an exact parallel to what we talked about last time. And just like we said about those diverse different styles of language, we also truly can find value in social media. Indeed we can. And hopefully on our next episode, you'll be able to see the value I have found from this program as I apply the three vital V's to my teaching career going forward. Welcome to the three vital V's. My name's Paul Davidson. And I am Scott Norman. And over the last six podcasts, not including the first one where we introduced ourselves, we've been discussing the three vital V's of the English classroom, specifically volume, variety, and value. As we went through volume, we discussed that it was not how loud my voice was, as sad as I was about that, but the actual amount of reading and writing that students are doing. And we then talked about variety and the various different types of interactions that they could have with different types of texts and styles and voices as well. And then we talked about value and the value of the different vernaculars that students have and the different mediums that they embrace as their kind of home medium with social media. The question is, Paul, now that we have gone through all of this learned it and mostly you've taught me all about these things how is that actually going to change your classroom experience monday to friday well going forward it is going to be a monday through friday type of experience no longer will i try to tackle longerish units i'm going to shorten them down and pretty much a week at a time we will be focusing on an individual purpose theme voice style you name it it can change up just based on what that particular class is needing at that particular time mm-hmm. on monday we'll be tapping into students prior knowledge where we'll be basically saying here's the topic for the week here's the thing we're talking about here's the idea we're going to explore what are some of the things that you know 
know. Here's some things that you need to know for background information heading into it. Then, starting on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we're going to read excerpts. And we're going to read a wide variety of excerpts. It just depends on how long the excerpt is, depends on what we're looking at, and we're just going to interact with as many excerpts as we can for the majority of class. I'd say probably about 80% of class. That last 20% of class, I'm going to give them time to express themselves, to kind of put their thoughts down on paper, and they could write about a wide variety of things, but they have to write about something that falls in line with that particular theme. So they could either try their hand at one of the excerpts that we interacted with earlier, just write their thoughts on the idea that we are exploring, or just craft their own idea within the, their own piece that follows along the theme we were exploring. So we're going to do that Tuesday through Thursday. Then on Fridays, I'm going to have them pick one of their things that they wrote because the thing they write at the end of class, I'm not taking it for a serious grade. It's just, it's a classwork grade. You just need to work on it. Like and make sure they got it done. Make sure you at least try an attempt. Make yeah. sure you at least put an attempt out there. There was an attempt. Yes. And then on Friday, they're going to pick one of the things that they wrote at the end of Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and they'll have the hour to kind of polish it. They'll be able to draft it out a little bit more if they need. They'll have me to be able to provide them some feedback, what I think they should go with the piece. They can talk to their classmates about it. And then on Monday, that particular piece will be due. Now, whenever I say piece, it can be a wide variety of things. It can be just something that they write if they want to write, but if it's like a podcast, like we're doing right now, they could do a podcast. If they are wanting to try their hand at poetry, it could be a poem. It could be a Twitch live stream in which they're talking about their thoughts on the class this past week. As long as they run it by me and I can say, all right, and give them some direction of how to get to a bigger and greater idea, I'm open to anything that they want to try their hand at publishing. So that actually, like this whole idea is really cool to me. And it harkens back for me to when I was in school. Some of the things that I remember most from my English classrooms, plural, are not essays that I wrote. I don't really remember any of those. But I had a couple teachers that would allow a friend of mine and I turn in, instead of papers, videos. And we had a blast doing it and literally answered all of the same prompts, did all the same thing that other students did. And it probably took us more time because we had to, you know, write, direct, and edit the videos. But it is kind of what you're talking about. So here is my question then for you is, as you are going through this, how then do you explain this to if a parent or an admin comes and talks to you and says, why is someone doing a Twitch live stream in your class? How do you give them the short version of what we have just gone through in like just a brief statement? Even though they're doing a Twitch live stream, writing is still required at the center of what they're doing. They're reading it off of a script. Actually, I've had kids do Twitch live streams before, so I've, I've had practice with this. The video game that they're playing actually falls in line with the theme that they're trying to explore. They're trying to connect in their piece of writing. Even though it does not look schoolish in nature, it is still requiring them to practice their literary ability in order to express their thoughts about what they had to say. Nice. I actually am probably going to steal some of this from you for my classroom. <laughs> and that's just the big thing is that a lot of the thing that I've learned from this program mm -hmm. is that we have this idea of what English should be, what the stereotypical English class is, and we need to divorce ourselves from that view to be able to grab a hold of and embrace this much wider and greater thing that English encompasses that we put ourselves in a box and don't allow English to actually access. I don't really think that there's any better way to conclude than with that poignant summary. Well, I hope you enjoyed and possibly learned something from our little limited run series we did here. So what you're trying to say is you hope that from our eight volume variety series, they found something of value? Exactly. Regardless, I've been Paul Davidson. I am Scott Norman. And this has been the three vital V's of the English classroom. Well, I hope you enjoyed my final project. 
believe it or not, it is truly the accumulation of a mountain of reading, writing, and long nights. But at the end of the day, I do feel like I am a better English teacher than I was two years ago when I started this crazy, stressful, yet rewarding journey. I'm glad all of you have been along to witness parts of it. The podcast started out as one of my assignments. We thought that'd be one and done, and it has grown into something both me and Mr. Norman would never imagine. But I guess until next time, my name is Paul Davidson, and his name is, and Lord willing, will be Scott Norman, and we have been two dumb woke guys. This was a TDWG presentation.